we've made it. 50 episodes and Sam hasn't quit. <laughs> Just. And how are we going to celebrate this momentous occasion? Well, of course, we're watching your absolute favourite horror film. Let them guess. Let's let them guess. Oh, well, I think they might already know, James, because they've pressed play. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's in the title. Oh, <laughs> annoyingly. Okay, yeah, fine. But let's play along. Name a remake better than the original. Wait, I thought this was an original. No, it's a remake. Howard Hawks' The Thing from Another World from 1951. Both are adaptations of the 1936 novella by John W. Campbell, Who Goes There? Howard Hawks is one of Carpenter's major influences as a director and the paranoia between the men in this film and the light-hearted banter between them is borrowed from Hawks' film. Because this film would be depressing as hell without the added humour. Yes, for the 50th episode we are talking about John Carpenter's 1982 cult classic sci-fi horror masterpiece, The Thing. That was a good hype up. Hmm. I'd like to add that sci-fi horror is my favourite type of horror. So I've got a question for you, James. Why is this your favourite horror film? Like there's there's so many horror films and you have said that a lot of them that we've watched that they're like some of your favourites, but why is this the ultimate favourite? So from John Carpenter being my favourite director, The Thing is a great story brilliantly told. It's bold. It's rebunctious. Yes, I'm using bigger words now. It's deliciously over the top with the violence and the gore. The gore. The gore. The gore. The gore. It's sometimes scary and suspenseful. You've never seen another monster movie like this before. And a testament to how good it is, is the number of countless piss-poor imitators it has spawned in the years since. And I am just glad it receives the praise today it should have gotten all those decades ago. And it hits the ground running. The film literally starts with the inciting incident. The harsh, windswept, frozen environment of Antarctica that can easily kill you as much as the thing itself. Yeah, and literally get stuck out there for a few hours and... You're a popsicle. <laughs> Pretty much. And all exterior shots were filmed at a glacier in Canada. We see someone shooting at a husky. Why are they shooting at the husky? Obviously, I understand later on. <laughs> also, the guy that is actually shooting at this husky is a really shit shot. <laughs> yeah, he's got that typical stormtrooper aim. <laughs> How many shots does he actually take? And either he is hitting the husky, the bullets are hitting and nothing's happening, or he's just a really shit aim. Well, with all due respect, he is in a helicopter, so... A lot of turbulence. But it goes on for a while. I'll just throw grenades at it from there. Yeah, because later we see that he does actually have them. Blows the helicopter up. Or was that the pilot? The pilot gets incinerated straight away. Yeah. The film has already drawn the audience in. We're wondering what the hell is going on here. Some nutty Norwegian has gone postal and taking pot shots at a husky. And then after he's shot dead and the pilot is blown to kingdom come, the husky is brought into the American outpost 
and the film allows us the opportunity to get to know the characters. It's kind of like the Hobbit syndrome. Too many dwarfs. What do you mean the Hobbit syndrome and then saying too many dwarfs? There's hobbits and there's dwarfs. In The Hobbit, there's too many dwarfs. And in this film, there are too many men. Oh, I see. Okay, I get you now. we get a better idea of who they are, while others are pushed to the sidelines. Mm Mm-hmm. And after watching this film, I've only just started to question, what are these men in this outpost 31 even researching in the Antarctica? Well, that's why I asked you straight away, like, why are they actually there? I mean, obviously we find out why the Norwegians are there. Well, no because they discovered it while they were researching as well. So why have all these countries got loads of research outposts in Antarctica? And I think even in the prequel, there's mention that they devise a plan to head to, I think, was it China's or Japan's or Russia's outpost? So there's more outposts out there. So what the hell are they researching in Antarctica? How cold it is? Mm. Doing a quick search, there's actually a lot... And I mean a lot of research posts in um, Antarctica. What is happening up there? <laughs> you think they're just trying to like carve their own real estate? Like, oh, America's got there, so I'll go up there before they take it all over. I'm not sure, actually, because there's a map of permanent research stations. And there's only like a handful that are kind of inland. All the other ones are on the outskirts of the island. Right. But that must be the worst job ever. They must get so much danger money and they must be bored out of their heads like all these characters are. Yeah, I mean, they're... (sighs) Like that. They are bored. (laughs) I am bored from this search. (laughs) So maybe they welcome an alien shapeshifter infiltrating their base and slowly picking them off. I mean, I don't think I'd describe it as welcome. Um, A little bit of change up, but they've only been there recently, though. Yeah, they're already bored out their heads. At this point, the film is as much of a mystery in the first act as it is a sci-fi horror. As we see the aftermath of the Norwegian base, which MacReady and Doc investigate, There's the axe in the wall, the guy who committed suicide, the ice coffin where they dug out the thing, Mm -hmm. the charred mutated body outside. So what do MacReady and Doc do? Oh, we found this fucked up body in the snow. Let's take it back to our camp. Yeah, we brought it back so everyone can throw up in their mouths. This is what happens when you don't have TV. This is what happens when you get bored. But I also guess that because they're from a research team that anything that they have not seen before they want to experiment on they want to find out what this thing is and speaking of the harsh cold terrain of antarctica being a stickler for detail john carpenter wanted to see the breath of the actors to emphasize how cold it was So the Norwegian camp and the ending beneath the outpost were built on stages at Universal. Okay. Only they refrigerated those film sets. (laughs) However, it was in the middle of the summer outside. What? In California. Why would you film in that... Oh, my goodness. 
and it was torture for the actors to leave once they stepped outside. Well, it's one extreme to another, isn't it? Like, <laughs> oh, you could get frostbite. Oh, how about I just faint from heat? <laughs> oh, it gets better. Filming in Canada had its own problems. It was fucking cold, of course. And once they shot scenes outside, they would head inside for scenes inside the outpost and the camera lens would fog up from the humidity. Well, yeah, of course it would. So they had to take the doors and windows off the camera room and keep it cold to avoid any issues. Oh my god. Yeah, this was really fun to film for everyone involved. Mm. It's a shame they didn't have like an outside camera and an inside camera. I guess they didn't have the technology in the 80s. Well, they didn't have the budget for it. Yeah. And at this point, it's almost 30 minutes into the film before the thing actually reveals itself mm. in the dog kennel. Yeah, so it is It is quite a slow build-up, but it is building tension. It builds tension and you get to know these characters before they're picked off. Yeah. You get these very small, subtle character scenes where you've got Palmer and Charles in their bunks watching a porno and smoking a spliff. But or, are they watching a porno? Based on the music, it's like really cheesy 70s porno music. You know, the cliche... Yeah, but that was just music, though. That could have been used in lots of different things. I mean, I know we didn't see the screen, but that's because they were focusing on them smogging. Look, I know men, okay? And when men are bored, and when there's no women in the vicinity... They're going to, like, lower their social etiquette and they're going to watch pornos together. So, the thing. That beautiful creature, the thing. Beautiful? <laughs> Not on the surface. Inside. He's a poet. He's an artist. Uh, he, yes. He's very creative with, um... He, it, is very creative with what... It creates. Death. Death. Yeah, John Carpenter didn't want a man in a suit. Even Alien had a man in a suit, and they weren't good enough for the thing. No. So, Rob Butin would eventually be given the job of designing the alien and bringing it to life. The two previously collaborated on The Fog. Rob even played Blake, the main ghost in some scenes. Although, it's all in silhouette, he's got glowing red eyes, and I think he was only cast because he had long hair. Like a pirate. Right, okay. Butine decided upon a creature who constantly changed its form. Literally. Literally. Can't say it today. Literally. 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 Queen's English, people. Literally an indescribable thing. He was 21, 22 around the time he worked on this picture. Hmm. And it's his imagination that gave this monster life. When I was 21, 22, I couldn't create these practical effects. I was too busy touching myself. I think that's the norm, James. <laughs> but obviously not just doing that. Yes, well, Boutine is the outlier because he put his hands to more creative use and created all these practical effects. Everything you see in this film, he created that. And when you compare that to the dodgy CGI of the prequel and... That's not the filmmaker's fault. They did do practical effects. But then some executive producer was like, nope, I don't like that. Put CGI over it. Yeah, that worked well, didn't it? Great. 
So when was that made? Because we know CGI doesn't always age very well. Off the top of my head, 2011, I think. Okay. And I think that was the first film in the horror genre where they did a prequel or a reboot or sequel and they just used the original film's title. So after all the countless times I've watched this film, this was the first time I really tried to pay attention to the timeline of who got infected and when. Mm -hmm. So Blair, I don't think he's infected straight away. He just completely breaks down and becomes so paranoid he just starts tearing the place apart. And then he's locked away in some shed outside where he doesn't freeze to death because that place does not look like it's heated. (laughs) <laughs> it's no, it's definitely not heated. What is that? Is that where they stole the food or something? The tin food? I don't know, because there was a chair and a desk there. God knows. Well, he's locked out there and he starts warning McCready like, to keep an eye on Clark, the guy who takes care of the dogs, because I guess he was closest in vicinity to the thing when it mm-hmm. came in. Yeah. Pretty sure he's the one where the husky dog jumps on him and starts licking his face. Yes. Which is DNA and... The thing controls every single microscopic part of its DNA. Yep. But he isn't infected because in the end McCready shoots him dead. Mm-hmm. So he's not infected. But you see when a husky is first introduced into the outpost, you see it wandering around like a creepy little bastard. And then at night it wanders into someone's room. Yeah. And you see the silhouette. I can't remember who it is. I think that's Palmer. I think he's the radio operator, the one who believes in like UFOs and thinks the government has been covering them up for years. Because when they do the blood test, he's the only one who's infected. He was wearing a like denim cutoff jacket thing. Yeah. And we saw that outside, and that was before we saw um Thingy Bob's um McCready's. Yeah. I thought that was McCready's as well. No, it wasn't. Because Fuchs, he's the one who finds it, doesn't he? Yeah. And then you find his charred body outside. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if he got infected and then he sacrificed himself. Because the thing wouldn't just kill someone. I guess at this point, Palmer then sneaks off and infects Blair whilst he's alone in that shed thing. Yeah. Because then once he's infected and imitated, he then starts to create that tiny little UFO underneath the shed in the snow. Yeah. That's like gonna fit in one person. And the first person who we actually get confirmation is infected is Benin's, but he is infected by the double headed creature that's um, start, started to defrost. And so. Was... Oh, yeah, it starts dripping down in the storage yeah. room. Yeah. So he's infected by that, but then he is killed instantly because it fails to completely imitate itself before it's caught out. Yeah, because he tries running away, doesn't he? And his hands are still not formed. He's the first truly infected, but obviously at this point in time, Palmer is infected. He's just lying low. Mm-hmm. And then everyone thinks McCready is a suspect because for whatever reason, the thing wants to plant him as a as a suspect. It's a decoy, isn't it? Why McCready? Does he deem him as a threat? Because he's got the leadership skills. He's the one with a plan. Yeah. This is a bit I found odd. Norris, who turns out to be infected everyone thinks he's had a heart attack and then he reveals himself to be a thing when when the doctor then goes to try and revive him yeah Yeah. and then the thing reveals itself by chomping his hands off yeah his chest becomes a massive gaping mouth with teeth 
But we see scenes with him by himself where he's like going, ah, like he's having a heart attack or a heart attack is coming on from the stress of all the paranoia. But it's the thing, taking him over, but then it doesn't fully imitate him because he falls down and has a heart attack and then reveals itself. Unless that's the thing's kind of way of getting... Well, I'm going to lay a tack on you because everyone's in the same room. Yeah. Okay. And by the way, that was an amputee they used. What, so they used someone that didn't have yeah, they got a double part of their arms? When they oh. had the scene, he goes, ah, yeah, they decided they found some guy who lost both his arms. Oh, okay. Realism. I mean, that's, yeah, that's great. Got the guy a job, I guess. Yeah, and it looked real. Yeah, because it was real. Because it was real. <laughs> and then we come to Palmer infected. He quickly infects Windows by chomping his head and doing this weird little dance. Burn him. Burn him now. <laughs> yes, burn all the infected. Fire resolves that problem. He's dead. They're both dead. Both, both dead. Mm-hmm. Lovely, beautiful, all cleansing fire. So Blair is the only infected at the moment and now loose once they're going to investigate. But of course they leave Charles alone when the others go to retrieve Blair. Seriously, like, have we not learned yet? I say we. We. I, I was shouting at the TV at this point, like, "Why are you leaving someone on their own? Why? We just had this discussion yeah, <laughs> that all... this thing is going to clone or what? No, infect. this thing infect. is going to infect whoever is near it. If it if there's something on its own, like, can we not be on our own right now? Yeah, and we've just dealt with all this paranoia." which this whole blood test was there to resolve. The second you split up and you're going to come in contact with that person again, you're going to be like, so are you who you say you are? Mm. Well, no, they leave Charles alone and you basically don't, you don't see him now until the end of the film. Mm-hmm. And we just assume that he's been taken. We've watched MacReady this whole time. Yeah. MacReady's not infected. But at this point, Gary, Charles and Knowles they all resign to their fate and decide for everyone it's a no-win situation and they're going to sacrifice themselves to kill this alien by blowing up the entire outpost. Yes, because the thing, he can just hibernate in the snow and wait for the, was it, rescue team to come once the storm has resided? I mean, this is what annoys me a little bit because it's saying that when when the generator gets um, destroyed, destroyed or something... Doesn't... It's disappeared. Surely, once the thing had infected, it could have just run away, hidden somewhere, then wait out everything. Yeah, you could. it can infect so many people. And it's the same entity, just occupying so many different bodies. Yeah. Just get one of them and just disappear out into the blizzard. Mm. And then some rescue team can find it, take it back with them to, like, America. Because it wants to infect the entire world. So... We come to the third act, and in the generator room, Blair, quotation marks, doesn't beat around the bush and just absorbs Gary right there. Then knows, even though he hasn't learnt anything this entire time, what sees Gary being dragged off. Yes, and decides, oh, I'll follow this body being dragged away. And we don't see knows again, so we just assume he's been infected off camera to build that massive alien at the end mm-hmm. that explodes through the flooring 
And to be honest, that's not the best alien design at the end. You think they'll leave the best till last. Mm. And it's just a mishmash of just mass and teeth. A couple of heads and then this oddly coloured dog that comes out of his chest. Yeah. The Thing versus MacReady. MacReady, well, doesn't win, I guess. Because he's going to die now in the freezing cold. And then Charles turns up. Who's the Thing? Probably Charles, because we haven't seen him. He's been off camera this whole time. He saw Blair, he went after him and got lost in the snow. We haven't seen you, mate. We've seen MacReady this whole time. We're going to assume you're infected. It's quite dark to have such a downbeat ending for a film. It works, though. It works for the film. It's quite nihilistic, and that is one of the criticisms the film got. Mm. But... You wouldn't see that these days. They'll be pushing for that happy ending. Not every film has to end with people walking off into the sunset holding hands like, hip hip hooray, yay! Everything's fantastic. No. That's true. And that's probably why I liked No Way Home because that ends on such a downbeat ending as Mm. well. And getting back to the thing, there's two theories that are floating around that Charles is the thing because you can't see his breath, but that could have just been a mistake. Mm Mm-hmm. And that MacReady has filled that bottle with fuel and smirks when Charles takes a swig, confirming he's infected because an alien wouldn't know the difference between whiskey and gasoline. Let's face it. If that was the case, though, I think maybe they would have ended on the note of blowing Charles up or something. Yeah, I think it's just fans looking into it a bit yeah. too much. So, throughout this film, I didn't didn't get scared, but there were bits that I just didn't really they didn't make me feel comfortable (laughs) um so there was a lot of aspects of feeling claustrophobic because obviously they're out in the middle of nowhere um all of their kind of getaway vehicles they've all been destroyed (laughs) snow way of getting out Okay. <laughs> and yes, yeah, so they they have a generator, so there's not flowing electricity to keep things <laughs> lit up, you know. We get we get a lot of darkness. Remember, Sam doesn't like the dark. Um then there's that spider head thing. That was um yeah. Didn't like that. I know it didn't last for very long, but I don't like spiders. I don't like them. And then throughout the film, I just generally felt quite tense. And I think the main reason for that is the music, so the score behind it. This score is done by composer Ennio Morricone. It's very minimalistic, isn't it? But haunting. So we hear a lot of kind of heartbeat-like motifs throughout the film. And that, I think, is keeping the tension going, or for me at least it was. So it's building the tension, it's keeping you on edge, it's suggesting the kind of racing heartbeat of the characters. The score's definitely matching what's on screen fantastically without overpowering any moment. It's simple but effective. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he's the composer of all the famous spaghetti westerns, isn't he? Like the good, the bad and the ugly. Yes, he is, yeah. Because I remember that Tarantino, when he made The Hateful Eight, 
it was because of this score. Because yes. he how did you pronounce his name? Maricone? Maricone, yeah. He did the score for the Hateful Eight. And Morricone. 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 Yeah, he did the score for the Hateful Eight, and that film is a response to Tarantino's first reaction to seeing the thing for the first time. Oh, okay. And he wanted to like put that obviously not into words, but in a reflection in a film. Mm. Hence why it's a cabin full of strangers. All this tension and paranoia of monks people trapped in a snowstorm and it stars Kurt Russell as well. Oh, okay. So that was the thing. Now let's go beyond it. And this is where things get a little bit heartbreaking. Oh. To some regard. The now famous Drew Struzan painted one sheet poster that was used to promote the film was not signed off on by the producers. Oh. It happened without their knowledge. From the start, John Carpenter insisted he did not want a man in a suit playing the monster. And what does this image depict? The man in a suit. <laughs> Yeah, it's a man with the shapeless entity coming out of his face. And like all Drew Struzan's work, it's an incredible hand-painted piece of art, but it does not represent the film well at all. It's a little underwhelming. Because mm. even now, first thing you think of when you say the thing, you think of that painted image. It looks like a refracted mirror coming out of some person's face. It doesn't show any imagery of the alien from the film. Imagine this summer lineup now. The film was scheduled to open on June the 25th, 1982. Mm -hmm. The trailer was attached to previews ahead of Prince of E.T., despite that audience definitely not the target for the thing. Mm. But E.T. had the largest audience in motion picture history at the time, so it couldn't hurt, right? Wrong. They were very, very wrong. Nobody wanted to watch this grim, gory, and downbeat sci-fi horror after watching a friendly alien who looked like an aggressive turd blossom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I get that. <laughs> the summer of 82 was owned by Steven Spielberg. E.T. dominated the box office while the thing bombed hard. Keep in mind, this was John Carpenter's first major studio film. Mm. It's bad luck, isn't it, really, that you have to compete with such a big blockbuster film? Oh, that's not all. Oh, no. June the 14th, Poltergeist and Star Trek Two came out. Mm. June the 11th, E.T. And only worth mentioning because it's one of Sam's favourites, Grease 2. <laughs> not one of my favourites, but I enjoy it. And then we have June the 25th, The Thing, and Blade Runner. Oh, okay. Although that was a bomb as well. Just like oh. The Thing, that has become a cult classic over the years yeah. since. Because everyone went to see E.T. Yeah. There's also a lot of other kind of sci-fi things to contend with as well. No, obviously this is a horror sci-fi, but yeah. you see what I mean. And let's face it, trailers back then weren't great. Mm. So that probably didn't help the film either. Especially showing it at a family-friendly sci-fi film. The Thing was a victim of bad timing. And then, the critics absolutely destroyed it. It doesn't matter if The Thing is now considered a masterpiece of the genre today, 
John Carpenter put his blood, sweat and tears into this film. His first major studio production and he watched his work get shit on. Mm. One critic even called him a pornographer of violence. What? Oh yeah, they did not give him an easy ride at all. They tore into him after the release of the thing. The critics did not hold back in the slightest. Well, I mean, critics don't anyway, but... Well, even today's standards, if yeah. you read these reviews, they're really brutal on it. Right. Carpenter never truly recovered from this ordeal. The major studios lost faith in him. Universal slashed the budget of his adaptation of Stephen King's Firestarter, which forced him to leave the project. He still made cult classics in the 80s, only with a smaller budget. But if you look at his work in the 90s, you get a sense he had this creative burnout. Mm. He had lost confidence in his vision and it's reflected on screen. There's something lacking in his work. And the only outlier at this time was In the Mouth of Madness. John Carpenter is my all-time favourite director, so when I see he isn't on form, it's painful to watch. And that's all I gotta say about that. I mean, we're all our worst critics anyway, but when you actually have critics destroying you like of course that's going to affect future work and it takes time to then build back up yeah the thing was his passion project mm. it's a remake of his favorite director's work and he was given all this money he was basically given this free reign after the success of halloween and the fog and it's a great film it's loved today it's one of the genre's best but it's at the time just... it was destroyed yeah Unfortunate timing. Yeah, blame E.T. If we have a look at Rotten Tomato, it's got a 82% tomato meter. That's got 72, uh, 74 reviewers. And then the audience score, which is over 100,000 ratings, that's at 92%. Yeah, so where were these critics in 1982? Mm-hmm. After all these decades, it gets the praise it deserves. If you haven't seen it, definitely put it on your to-watch list. There's literally no other monster film like it. There is no man in a suit. And they go to town with that. Let's just touch on... Everybody loves a cliche. Yeah, just so we can put the soundbite in. <laughs> Everybody loves a cliche. Not a lot of cliches, really. No. no. Why? Silence. Is there any cliches? I mean, you've you've obviously got the gang splitting up. We have already touched on that. Us going, no, don't leave someone on their own. <laughs> and you have exploring in the dark. Yes, but I kind of find it fits more in the film. So is it really a cliche? Because obviously they're in the middle of nowhere. It's going to get dark. And... They only have a generator, so... Like, you have one moment when someone gets out a candle <laughs> beside his bed or, like, desk or something. There's just a random candle. Well, it's still a cliche because it's used all the time, but because they wrote it so well into the script... It just... It's seamless, isn't it? it? It's seamless. It works. Hence why it's a good film, people. Go to see it. <laughs> so, Sam, not scared... Sam enjoyed it. This is my second time I've seen it, so surely that shows something. 
Oh, Sam, we're going to watch it again. <laughs> yeah, but it's entertaining. It's not like I'm saying, hey, Sam, let's go and watch Blood Rage again, is it? Can't even remember us watching that, can you? Nope. There you go. There's an episode on it, so. Great. My point exactly. Did I enjoy it? Probably not. Right. I don't think either of us enjoyed it. Okay, then. There we go. <laughs> so that was our episode on The Thing, episode 50. And we still have a podcast and we're still together, miraculously. Well, we are getting married this year. I purchased my dress. I think I'm going to buy a Lord of the Rings pin for my suit because I'm so cool. So cool. That's okay. At least I'm not walking down the aisle with a lightsaber. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Are you hinting at something I don't understand? <laughs> I'm just saying I'm a bit of a geek. But that's the extent I'm going. I'm not walking down the aisle with Gandalf's staff. I'm not wearing a massive white beard. I'm not wearing a Darth Vader helmet and swinging around a lightsaber. Touch of geek. Touch of geek. But not to the point it's unbearable and an embarrassment. And probably the worst of it is this podcast in Sam's eyes. Sam, let's watch another horror film. Oh, okay. <laughs> Secretly, I actually enjoy some of them, so... <laughs> yes. And the only person who's getting a real punishment is the person who has to edit the episodes, and that's me. We have been your hosts. I've been Sam. And I have been James. And this has been Scaring Sam. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ScaringSamPod. And you can always contact us at scaringsempod at gmail.com. Stay safe out there tonight. Yes, and please rate and review us wherever oh. you listen to our podcasts. Goodbye. And stay safe out there tonight. Oh, you're not doing it with me. Stay, stay safe, safe out, out there, there tonight. tonight. 50 episodes and we've nailed it. <laughs>